Veteran Australian diplomat speaks out against war danger. Coming up in Citizens Insight. Welcome to Citizens Insight, the Citizens Party's interview series on matters of national and international importance. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by a special guest, retired Australian diplomat John Lander. Welcome John. Thank you Robbie. We're going to talk to John about this subject of the war danger facing Australia. John, let me just introduce you to the uh, audience. You were the first Australian ambassador to the Islamic Republic of Iran which basically means Iran after the revolution, from 1985 to 1988. You were the Deputy Ambassador to China from 1974 to 1976 and three-time Head of the China Section at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So thanks very much for joining us today. We, as you know, and it's the reason you're here, share a concern about the um, relationship between Australia and China and where it's headed. Why are you speaking out now as a retired diplomat? Uh, well, Robbie, um, I retired from the Department of Foreign Affairs in 1996. And when I, uh, after 30 years in diplomatic service, when I left, I thought, well, that's it. That's closed that chapter on my life. And I could go into retirement and uh, enjoy my involvement in another lifelong interest, which is um, the human voice, the training of the voice, and particularly for singers, but also for speakers, actors, and so on. So I really switched off from uh, international affairs for quite a long time. Um, <clears throat> but only in the last year or so, uh, I've become really dismayed at the deterioration in Australia's relationship with China. I have enjoyed since uh, the year 2000 in particular, the opportunity to visit China on uh, very frequent occasions, approximately once a year from 2000 until t uh, 2019. And, and what's been your view of China in that time? Has it been a positive one? Oh, very much so. When I uh, arrived in Beijing in 1974, um, the very start of uh, our diplomatic relationship with China, um, I was particularly struck by how backward China was in comparison to Australia, uh, by the extent to which uh, people were circumscribed in China, the way we as foreigners in China were circumscribed, we could have no genuine inter interaction with the common man or woman. Um, for example, when um, I was there with my children and uh, they were toddlers, and when we took them to the local park to, to play, uh, they would arrive and there'd be maybe 50 kids with their IEs uh, all enjoying the, the swings and the roundabouts and the play equipment and my two little blue-eyed, blonde-haired kids would enter the playground and uh, an IE would <laughs> like that and all the Chinese children would immediately disperse 
and form a, a circle around the playground and watch my two kids using the equipment. There was no interaction allowed. Uh, when I went back uh, to visit my cousin, who was the uh, professor of English studies in the School of Economics in Shanghai University, he was there for five years. I visited him in 2000 and I was absolutely stunned at the change. The standard of living was quite different. The uh, public transportation was amazing. The freedom of interaction of myself as a completely anonymous foreigner, I had no status, mm. um, was unhindered. I could uh, talk with and uh, have meals with anybody I liked, even a complete stranger I met on the street. Uh, I went off and had dinner with him just to talk about uh, life in China. Um, it was a complete culture shock, the difference. When I first started that experience, it left me feeling very uncomfortable because I kept feeling that this isn't right. <laughs> this isn't how Chinese people are supposed to act with foreigners. From my previous experience in, in Beijing in 74, 75, up to 76. And when, so this is a very positive experience. When did you become, start to become alarmed at the change in the relationship? Um, I would say belatedly. Uh, I didn't really um, pay much attention for quite a long time. Uh, but in the last couple of years in particular, uh, the pronouncements, particularly by the current Minister for Defence, about the inevitability of war with China um, really alarmed me uh, because there seemed to be no appreciation uh, either at government level or amongst the general Australian population of the implications of such a prospect. Mm. Uh, it, war with China would be the first time, I think, really in Australia's history since the Second World War, that the average Australian citizen will experience the horrors of war. Now, um, your concern is war with China, as is ours, but let's come at this from a slightly different way. There's already a war underway in the world right now, as you know, in Ukraine. You have a perspective on the cause of that war, and what lessons do you think we can draw from what's happening in Ukraine for us vis-a-vis -vis our relationship with China? Uh, I think it has very significant implications because as far as I can see, the, the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is part of a process. The United States euphemistically named National Defence Strategy uh, hasn't been much altered since uh, um, it was first drafted apart from the insertion of a very significant factor uh, which is called the strategy of denial. And uh, I noticed uh, that our Defence Minister uh, indicated to the Australian newspaper that he had read that book with yes. great interest. The strategy of denial simply boils down to the proposal that the United States uh, confront and defeat its uh, perceived enemies, its potential peer competitors, uh, by proxy. 
And <coughs> I've noticed that many commentators, apart from myself, have described the current conflict in Ukraine as, you, as the United States war by proxy. This is the idea, to be, put it crudely, that America is willing to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. Yes. <laughs> I think that's not a bad way of putting it. Um, because um, the strategy of denial, as outlined in uh, Elbridge Colby's book, um, was devised in relation to uh, the United States' principal threat, which is China, according yeah. to the United States. China is the threat to the American-imposed world order. The strategy clearly suggests that the United States should, the United States and its allies should goad China into a military action against Taiwan in order to provoke a prolonged military conflict between Taiwan and China, which would bog China down, which would weaken its economy, which would put a roadblock uh, in front of its, its Belt and Road Initiative uh, and um, reinforce the US supremacy in the world. The, the strategy makes it clear that the United States would avoid direct military engagement with China uh, for two reasons, for the preservation of its forces and for the avoidance of uh, direct nuclear mm. conflict that it would arm and rearm Taiwan to enable it to keep on fighting for as long as possible. And most of Biden's pronouncements about uh, Ukraine are of a similar vein. He has made it clear that uh, the US will not, as he put it, US soldiers will not be firing on Russian soldiers but the US will continue to supply all the lethal aid that Ukraine needs in order to continue fighting Russia for as long as possible. Because the, uh, as a, a statement I saw uh, out of the US administration on the 25th of January made it quite clear that uh, the United States intention was that its actions in concert with the European Union over time, and that was a very significant um, element of the statement, that over time they would weaken the Russian economy to the point where it would be unable to exert any real influence on the international stage. That is uh, a fairly clear summation of the uh, strategy of denial in that it is designed to do exactly the same thing with regard to China, to debilitate it economically um, to the point where it is simply unable to exercise influence on the international stage. Uh, I think it is a, a futile objective. I think the time has long passed where um, there was any possibility of hindering China's economic growth. Um, China's uh, economic e connections with the wider world are now so uh, extensive and so intermingled with the 
economic welfare of so many countries, that, including Australia, that um, the idea of putting the genie back in the bottle is, is um, absolutely futile. And there's an overlap, I think, between what you're saying now and uh, the sanctions against Russia over the Ukraine war, because it's remarkable that the vast majority of the world has not participated with the United States in those sanctions. Yes, that's right. Um, there's a very interesting map uh, which shows very, very clearly in, in nice bright colour that the countries sanctioning the, so the, the Russians over their invasion of Ukraine are all Western countries. Yeah. Japan included, because Japan is effectively as a close ally and, a, and as a military base for yeah. the United States, is effectively a Western country. All the rest of the, 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 the globe, basically, uh, and certainly all of the countries which are part of the, uh, the former, the non-aligned movement, yeah. have f refused, uh, refrained from condemning Russia and have refrained so far from joining in sanctions against Russia. Not even India, yes. a member of the much-vaunted Quad Alliance, India, Australia, United States, Japan, India has a very close economic relationship with Russia India is dependent on Russia for its armament. India has set up a rupee to ruble uh, exchange channel for a payment for arms sales from Russia to India. So the possibility of India simply abandoning all of that and siding with the US in sanction, sanctioning uh, Russia, I think, is fairly slim, and President Biden has made it clear that uh, he intends that the United States shall sanction any country that does not <laughs> sanction Russia. So, if he's as good as his word, he would have to sanction India. Yeah, and. There goes the quad. Uh, there goes the quad. That would be the final nail in the quad coffin. Um, that would also very significantly contribute to the further unravelling of the uh, worldwide system of international financial transactions, the SWIFT. The system of worldwide international financial transactions is a system which depends on the US dollar as the reserve currency and is operated by the banking systems in the City of London and Wall Street. The world is already beginning to show that it is losing faith in the US dollar as reserve currency. Not only India has a direct currency exchange with Russia. China has a direct uh, renminbi to yen currency exchange with Japan. 
for payments related to significant um, items of trade between those two countries, and China is a major trading partner of Japan. Um, and I think that there are many, many other places in the world, all of the countries basically that have refused to sanction Russia, would be looking to move to an alternative system. I think one of the things that made China the principal threat to the United States was in fact the clear stated intention of China to amend the international financial system to make it fairer for developing countries. Yes. And that would clearly undermine, undermine the United States' control of the international financial system, which is one thing they will defend uh, tooth and nail. Uh, and it is a balancing act for the, the United States. Everything basically is dependent upon the US dollar remaining as the reserve currency of the world. All transactions must be conducted in dollar terms. It was once described to me uh, as an elephant standing on one leg on a toothpick. And the toothpick is the uh, position of the US dollar as reserve currency. That's, that, that, that's a metaphor for the American empire. <laughs> also. So your, and your point is, if, if, um, if these are the countries that haven't sanctioned Russia, and including India, and they're also the countries that uh, do most of their business now, not with the United States, but with China. Mm. And on top of that, John, there's 140 countries in the world that are members of China's Belt and Road. The United States cannot hope to win this yeah. rivalry. Yeah. As, of, as of this March, this year, 2022, uh, there are approximately 140 countries that have signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative. I say approximately because there are some whose signatory status is a bit iffy uh, in terms of what kind of document that they have signed. Um, a memorandum of understanding, for instance, like Victoria had, was not a commitment. No. It was simply uh, a statement of interest in participation in some form or other. Uh, and, of course, well, that's our own so Prime Minister welcomed the BRI in Parliament himself uh, and presented the, the, the whole concept of the BRI as being an economic opportunity for Australia who could supply many of the raw materials, iron ore and coal and other forms of energy, to um, supply the sure. construction projects that were being planned under the BRI. It's a bonanza for us. There's a reason we yes. should have been positive for it. But I don't want to gloss over this point you just made for our viewers. Back to Victoria's memorandum of understanding. You, as an experienced diplomat, saw it as just that, whereas you were here when it was subjected to one of the biggest beat-ups of all time by the American Secretary of State. Yes, that's right. Um, and it was symptomatic of the position that Australia has got itself into um, over the, the last maybe eight to ten years. Um, when, did, uh, when was uh, Barack Obama's visit? It was in 20, 2011. 2011. Um, and the pivot to Asia. Uh, that made it clear to Australia that 
uh, the United States was positioning China as its principal enemy. Yeah. Uh, it took until the visit of uh, Pompeo to really ram it down our throats that we should perceive China as our enemy. Mm. And we have positioned Australia, therefore, as the enemy of China. You can't say China is our enemy and not say that we are China's enemy. Um, and we are very fortunate that China has not yet declared in Australia to be an enemy of China. In fact, China has continued um, its trade with Australia. In uh, 2021, the two-way trade between Australia actually increased. China's uh, ban on a variety of Australian exports to China uh, have been characterised as vicious um, sanctions uh, against Australia as, as uh, attempts to force Australia into line. I don't see them that way at all. Uh, apart from coal, which I think was a mistake by mm. China, uh, all of the exports that China has um, banned from Australia or made entry into China extremely difficult are peripheral. They're not central to the Australian economy. In fact, the Australian government itself has pointed out that Australia has, has very successively survived yep. those, those bans. I see them more as a warning signal from China. They're basically saying, look, this is the kind of thing that can happen once you go into a war. Yeah. We don't trade with the enemy. The same thing happened to me in Iran. The, the Iranians said the same thing to me. I'll explain that in a minute. Yeah. But it is symptomatic of war that the... And we're seeing the opposing countries do not, do not maintain a friendly trade with each yeah, other. Yeah, we're seeing it right now in Ukraine. So China was sh firing a shot across the bow, essentially, yeah. saying this is what could yeah. happen. And so I think that China was just giving us a, a bit of a warning signal that, that we shouldn't go too far in this hostility to, chi hostility to China because of where it could lead. Well, back to the um, Taiwan question and the strategy of denial and Elbridge Colby's thesis, which... Our, as you've rightly pointed out, our Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, said in The Australian just before Christmas he'd read it, and it, it, um, it certainly backs up all his rhetoric, um, or his rhetoric backs it up. Um, you've, you've made, I think, you've drawn the parallels to Ukraine quite clearly, because that is clearly a proxy war, and your concern is this is going to happen. Part of what Albert Bridge Colbury's thesis is, though, is that if China does fire first on Taiwan then that would destroy its goodwill in the region. And the ASEAN countries, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which includes Indonesia and Malaysia and Singapore and um, those sort of countries, they will side with the United States in this conflict. But you don't Except the United States won't be engaged in that conflict. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you think of the, also the, the thesis Australia more broadly? The, Australia has, of course, made it very clear that Australia would, uh, would uh, take the same position as the United States in relation to Taiwan, it, uh, except that Australia would actually get involved in the fighting. And the US has made it clear that it won't get involved in the fighting. Uh, they will leave it to Taiwan in the first instance, and Australia, if it's silly enough to get involved, will be simply another proxy of the United States 
Because Ch China, China, China can conflict. kill Australians in a war without risking nuclear war, like between great powers, as we're seeing yeah. in yeah. Ukraine. So, for instance, I don't think that Pine Gap, which is an American facility on Australian soil, would be targeted by China if Australia were involved in uh, military battles with China. Because, because it's an American, it's an American facility. Yep. And attacking an American facility is attacking America. And that brings America into the war yep. between China and Taiwan. So if China doesn't attack Pine Gap, what will they attack? Well, it'll attack any bases in Australia which are Australian and not American. <laughs> so, um, well, that's a different perspective because most people think, oh, Pine Gap would be the only target. You're saying it would be the only thing that's not targeted. Everything else would be a target. Well, I think so. I think that, that they, they would, the, the Chinese would go out of their way to avoid targeting Pine Gap if they possibly could. Um, it is, of course, the command and control centre for uh, US operations in the Indo-Pacific. Um, but since the United States wouldn't itself be uh, physically engaging its forces in the battle between China and Taiwan, then there wouldn't be a very strong incentive on China to take Pine Gap out. Uh, but of course, taking out any base in Australia from which Australian forces could operate would be um, to be expected. But just to be clear, John, if the worst does happen, if this does, like in with Russia and the United States, if it does escalate out of control and there is a nuclear exchange, then Pine Gap is also definitely going to be a target. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if the United States is directly involved in firing weaponry at China, the very first target is Pine Gap. Yeah. Because that would go some way to crippling China, uh, the US's ability to control its operations in the Indo-Pacific and in the South China Sea. So here's a question in which I think your um, experience as a diplomat is very important. Our government says repeatedly that they want good relations with China. They say, we're trying to get China to pick up the phone to us, etc. We want to have a good relationship with China. That's what they say. They want peace. And Dutton says that every second time he opens his mouth. Oh yeah, we want peace with China. But you can analyse their behaviour as well as their rhetoric. And what does that tell you? Well, their rhetoric is uh, they speak with fork, forked tongue, I think yeah. is the <laughs> American expression. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think, by the way, that Biden speaks with forked tongue as well. Um, so at one level, yes, we want to have friendly relations with China, yes. But at the same time, particularly on the campaign trail, the yeah. the uh, mantra is China is a terrible threat. Uh, the war with China is inevitable. Australia must prepare for war. <clears throat> so uh, it's not just the government's actions, but its words mm. as well yeah. uh, are making it clear that it's still on the war path. Um, and of course. As Greg Sheridan has pointed out very, very cogently in uh, his article in The Australian a, a few weeks ago, um, and I didn't think I'd ever agree with Greg Sheridan <laughs> on anything, um, but I thought he was spot on. He opened his analysis of Australia's defence posture as with the sentence, forget about defending Taiwan, we can't even 
defend our own literal approaches. In other words, the, the, our own seashore, let alone any further afield. And he goes on to show, I think quite well, how all of the new weapons acquisitions and acquisitions to come uh, under AUKUS are contributing to the projection of US power into the Indo-Pacific and do nothing at all for Australia's defence. That's not my, just my opinion, that's Greg Sheridan's opinion, and he's an anti-China person. So, so the people who have staked everything on this attitude to China, which is supposedly for our security, are actually making us less secure, even by Greg Sheridan's analysis. Yes, because it's the United States which is seeking uh, conflict with China in order to drive it back from its present economic and political yep. status. And Malcolm Fraser said, Australia needs its alliance with the United States for its defence. But Australia only needs defending because of its alliance with the United States. My point is that quotation from Malcolm Fraser uh, leads me to point out uh, that way, way back in 1971, at the end of 1971, when I was a junior in the China section in the Department of Foreign Affairs, working with a small team preparing documentation for uh, the impending recognition of the PRC with the, because it was clear that uh, Whitlam was going to win the next election. Sorry, so we John, needed pe to be people's, people's Republic of China, the red, so-called Red China in those days, recognition <laughs> of Red China. Recognition of the People's Republic of China. Uh, uh, I remember very vividly being, doing the first draft of what ended up as policy planning paper QP 11 slash 71, which at the time was highly classified. Mm. Uh, time has now passed and it's available on the, uh, publicly available through the Foreign Affairs Archive. And we said in that paper, we shall need now more than ever to formulate independent policies based on Australian national interest and those of our near neighbours. The American alliance in a changing power balance will mean less to us than it has in the past. If anything, this argument has been strengthened by recent United States actions and America's failure to consult us on issues of primary importance to Australia. Those words are as pertinent today yes. as they were in 1971. We, we were very upset by uh, the Nixon-Kissinger overtures to China and the, the, their very obvious intention to move to recognising the People's Republic of China without telling us. Right. And that led us to conclude at least in the policy planning paper, that it strengthened the view that we would need to move 
to a position where we could formulate more independent policies based on Australia's national interests and those of our near neighbours. And th that happened again when Biden decided to whip the troops out of Afghanistan. We were there on America's coattails. We were there at the behest of America. We were operating in interdependently uh, yep. with American forces. And suddenly we're caught flat-footed. We had no evacuation planning for Afghanistan at all. And what was America's reaction to our complaints? Oh, America acts only in its own interests. Well, and then there's a contrast between this um, paper that you've just read from, which was the reaction back then, mm. to what our government did last year, which was announce AUKUS, which I'm struck by the formulation of what's in our interest and those of our near neighbours, because AUKUS, from, by that um, uh, formulation is a poke in the eye to our near neighbours. Yes, well, our, all our near neighbours, especially Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, have made it very clear to us that uh, they see uh, AUKUS as an instrument of American power projection into their region. They have not uh, in any way endorsed the um, new defence arrangements between Australia and the United States and particularly the increase in the basing of US forces in Australia as a welcome development. Um, they have studiously avoided um, siding with Australia in expressions of hostility towards China. Um, they have continued to uh, cement their economic relations with China. Um, the Chinese foreign minister's visits to a number of Southeast Asian countries uh, in September, late September, early October last year, uh, went a long way towards further consolidating those uh, relationships. Um, he success successfully arrived at an understanding with the Southeast Asian countries that have competing claims to the islands in the South China Sea, that the differences over claims in the South China Sea should be set to one side mm -hmm. and not allowed to uh, impede the development of friendly co cooperation in all other fields. That is the position that has been taken by our Southeast Asian neighbours. Why is it that, and they're the stakeholders in the South China Sea, right? Why is it that the stakeholders in the South China Sea can come to that position, yet countries like Australia and the United States, which even has no business there, refuse to? Uh, well, it's a puzzle to me, uh, but you seem to imply that Australia is not a stakeholder in the South China Sea. And of course it is. How else can we trade with China? China. <laughs> That's right. The main, the most important stakeholder in the Ch South China Sea is China. Yeah. So why does Australia need to participate in the with the United States in so-called freedom of navigation, naval operations in the South China Sea within shooting distance, almost spitting distance of the Chinese mainland? It looks to China like uh, the United States is endeavouring to position itself to be able to blockade China 
and prevent it from trading with Southeast Asia. Well, and this brings me to a question which I think we've covered in general, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I wrote it down here. In your experience, how independent is our foreign policy, Australia's foreign policy? Um, I would say since the end of the 20th century, Australia's foreign policy has become less and less independent. We were never truly independent uh, from the United States' influence on our foreign policy. We can't be as long as we are so inextricably bound up in the global financial system. Australia's financial survival is dependent upon the continuation of the American-controlled financial system. Yeah. So, yes, we're always influenced by the United States, our great and powerful friend. But after Australia moved ahead of the United States to recognise the People's Republic of China, for the last 35 years of the 20th century, we did, to some extent, pursue a fairly independent policy, particularly in relation to China. We were able to do that, of course, because the United States was also at that time pursuing mm. friendly economic cooperations with China. And I believe that when it became clear to the United States that it could not compete with the Chinese economic advancement, that it turned against China. And very quickly after that, it influenced Australia to do likewise. The, the whole narrative about China being a threat has risen to the fore. And I don't think uh, I've seen any arguments coming from within the, the government apparatus countering that view. Uh, all of the commentary uh, relating to China and to Australia's posture towards China and the need for a change to a more accommodating and more cooperative and collaborative relationship has come from outside the system. Yeah. The war in Ukraine, to bring us full circle, yeah. Is a war by the United, a war of the United States by proxy with Russia, yeah. and that it is a precursor to the United States' intention to generate exactly the same kind of proxy war using Taiwan to uh, bog China down. And if Australia decides to go into that and our defence minister has promised that Australia will inevitably go to the defence of Taiwan and that's what frightens me yeah. that it's at government level it is seen as being an inevitable consequence of a Chinese uh, military offensive to retain Taiwan as part of China as requiring Australia's military response. Mm. And as Dutton himself has pointed out in his, his press club speech, China's navy is vastly larger than Australia's navy and we are never going to catch up. So a naval war between Australia and China, Australia's navy would be obliterated in a matter of weeks. Uh, Minister Dutton also pointed out that, that China now has the 
missile capability to strike anywhere in Australia. Australia has no defence against ballistic missiles. So where does that leave us? We have land forces. We have just bought, at vast expense, a whole new fleet of land tanks. Yep. <laughs> but China isn't going to invade Australia if Australia no. goes to war against China. Australia will basically bring us, China will bring Australia to its knees without setting one single soldier's foot on Australian soil. So then you've got to say, why on earth would we even be thinking this? And that goes back to the point you made earlier. We, um, and just to draw this out, the, the politicians we talk about act as if they, they're kept awake at night by this fear that China's going to invade us, whereas your point is, I believe, that the real fear is our dependence on the United States or the, and the Anglo-American system, City of London and Wall Street, financially is so great that if we don't toe the line with this kind of strategy, they will punish us brutally. Uh, I think that is probably correct. Uh, I think uh, any honest Australian politician, if there is one, um, lying awake at night would be thinking about the consequences of us gainsaying America. Yep. That uh, if, as uh, uh, viewers may be, well, uh, may be well acquainted with the name John Mearsheimer, the uh, geopolitical analyst uh, who I think is at Chicago University, yep, he, is. Uh, he came to Australia a few years ago and in a debate at uh, the ANU, uh, he pointed out very, very forcefully, as is, as is his wont, he's quite yeah. a remarkably forceful <laughs> speaker. Yeah. He said two things which really sink, sank, uh, struck home to me. America is the most ruthless country on the planet. It has been at war for all but 17 years of its entire history. Mm with somewhere or other in the world. When push comes to shove, he said, Australia will side with America because Australia knows that America can do much more damage to Australia than China can. And I'll just point out a couple of things about that. Our credit, the, the, the credit that we get that fuels our foreign debt, which goes into things like our housing market, almost all of it comes from the US capital markets. America is the biggest foreign investor in Australia by far. Ah, yes. That, we've Ten a, times greater than China. We've had a decade of hysterical headlines about Chinese foreign investment, and it doesn't come close. The United States is about a trillion dollars. The United Kingdom is about 300 billion below that, way more than anybody else, and yes, much, much more than China. And yeah, that, and we saw what happened in 2008. Yes. with the credit crunch and the, and the prime mortgage collapse in America. We were shielded from that mm. largely because of our, our commodity trade with China. And the Australian economy survived pretty well. If we decided as a collective nationally that this is insane and we don't want to go down this path, 
and we genuinely don't, and we genuinely wanted to pursue a foreign, an independent foreign policy with China, what could we do most concretely to show good faith to the Chinese and convince them that we do not want a war? Well, there, there are two elements to my, in my response to that. Firstly, the direct response, what Australia, the Australian government can do. And that is right on the coattails of Biden's discussions with Xi Jinping on the 18th of March. The readout from that, those discussions, which was issued by China as the discussions were carrying on because they didn't want to be um, blindsided by the United States putting out an alternative version. Um, and the United States has not contradicted the Chinese readout. Okay, good. But she has made it clear that Biden reiterated that the US does not seek a Cold War with China. It does not aim to change China's system. The revitalization of its alliances is not targeted at China. Pull the other one. <laughs> the US does not support Taiwan independence and it has no intention to seek a conflict with China. Those are Biden's own words. Right. She didn't swallow them whole. No. And he responded by saying that some people on the US side have not followed through on the important common understandings reached by the two presidents and have not acted on President Biden's positive statements. The US has misperceived and miscalculated China's strategic intentions. So that is a perfect opening for Australia to reaffirm its commitment to the One China Principle, to restate the terms of the Paris Agreement on the recognition of the People's Republic of China and unlock the locked door and get through to some sort of discussion. But the government has not even begun to think about doing that. The new Chinese ambassador, when he arrived in Australia, made an extremely conciliatory overture to the Australian government, which was rebuffed. And this, what I'm suggesting, could be done publicly or could be done, first of all, through diplomatic channels. If I'm they, remembering it right, the formulation is something like, there is one China and Taiwan is a province of China. That's right. That's in the Paris Declaration. Yes. And that's our current policy, and you're saying it, we should just reiterate that policy. Yeah, because... Everything that Australia, all, all the public statements by Australian uh, government uh, ministers and officials and uh, personalities uh, like Tony Abbott um, have given the Chinese reason to f fear that Australia is moving away from its commitment to the One China Principle and given um, Minister Dutton's promise to defend Taiwan militarily, yeah. um, they have every reason to believe that we are edging away from the One China Principle.
And of course, and American need... politicians, including Mike Pompeo, are flying in there very regularly now into Taiwan, um, acting through their body Act... language as if it's an independent country. Yes, and inviting Taiwan to participate in the Democracy Summit in, in the United States yeah. and treating Taiwan as if it were an independent country. Uh, so it's, it is the gradual erosion yeah. of the One China Principle. Uh, and Australia has gone a lot further down that road than quite a lot of other countries. Mm. But when Lithuania decided to recognise Taiwan, everybody said, well, so what, Lithuania is a negligible yeah, yeah, country and Taiwan's not really interesting, so what's it matter yeah. that a tiny little country like Lithuania changes its mind? But I think China saw that as the thin end of the wedge, yeah. it, that... It was the beginning of the process of, of unwinding the one, the one China principle. So perhaps initially through diplomatic channels, the Australian government, the foreign minister or the prime minister could invite the new Chinese ambassador in and restate Australia's stance on the one China principle and the uh, agreement reached on the recognition of the People's Republic of China. It would be more effective, given that everything is megaphone diplomacy these days, mm. to issue that as a public statement. Yep. To reassure China that we are not crossing its one red line. China has made it clear for nearly a century, since, since uh, the end of the Second World War and the rise of uh, the the Chinese Communist Party and the establishment of the People's Republic of China, both China and Taiwan have had insisted that Taiwan was an integral part of the sovereign territory of China. When we recognised the PRC, we accepted that position and we gave due warning, I remember doing this very well, due warning to the Taiwanese embassy in uh, Canberra that if they wanted to be able to withdraw their assets, they needed to sell their properties before recognition took place. Otherwise, all Taiwanese assets in Chinese. Australia would, be, would belong to the PRC. Right. But we actually gave them a warning of what we were going to do and we allowed them to sell up and go home. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, and... So that is, uh, at, the, at the political diplomatic level, something that I think would, would break the deadlock uh, because it is the one issue on which, China, which is totally non-negotiable for China. Uh, and and you called it a red line before, and if there's one thing we should have learned from this like, Ukraine war is that yes. when a great power tells you what their red line is, accept listen, it. Listen. <laughs> And of course, the, the, an army of uh, retired American diplomats and uh, academics and uh, analysts and so on, over the 10 years from uh, that the uh, US has been pursuing this policy of expansion of NATO, a whole army of these people had been saying, this runs the risk of provoking yeah. Russia to attack. Yeah. And the administration quietly accepted, yes, it runs the risk because that's what we want. Yep. Uh, we want Russia to invade Ukraine because 
That creates the proxy war, which enables the United States to weaken Russia militarily, economically, diplomatically, and financially, and um, uh, reduce it to the point where it is not an effective influence on the world stage. If, if, this, if the, if the uh, Russian conflict in Ukraine has caused this much economic chaos, you would have to say, returning to Taiwan and China, we ain't seen nothing yet. That's if right. Gets, if it gets to that uh, point. That brings me to my next point, because you did ask me, what else can we, yeah. Australia, do? And that takes me right back to uh, the time of the Vietnam War, um, which was happening as I was going through university and uh, when I first joined the Department of Foreign Affairs. Um, and the, the anti-war movement in Australia, which eventually became extremely powerful yep. and brought about a, or provided the impetus for a policy decision uh, for Australia to withdraw from Vietnam before the final route of the United States. I was, a, funny the places I've been in, I was a junior officer still. Uh, I, I was back from my posting to Malaysia and I was working in the Indochina section. A three-man team, myself on the Cambodia desk, Ted Pocock, who was my head of section, and Bob Robertson, who was the head of the branch. And we put together a cabinet submission to persuade the Australian government that it should withdraw from Vietnam. And a lot of the impetus for that was created by the anti-war movement right. in Australia. Okay. So the only other thing I, I should use the, <laughs> the opportunity of this public forum yeah. to urge the, the Australian public in general to get behind an anti-war movement mm. before the war starts. Yep. The problem with Vietnam was the war raged on for so long, the United States practically obliterated Vietnam. Uh, I don't th think most people realise that more bombs were dropped by the United States on Vietnam than all of the munitions that were dropped by all of the contending parties in the whole of the Second World War. Uh, it was carpet bombing mm. gone mad. <coughs> and again, my, this is not my figure, this is a, a, a reputably sourced figure of 3.8 million Vietnamese were killed in the Vietnam War. And we were part of that. Yep. And we were part of that because we bought this myth that the yellow peril of Chinese communism was going to topple the dominoes all the way through Southeast Asia and down into Australia. And we had to stop it. And uh, it was a complete myth. And of course, what did we find when the war in Vietnam ended? The yellow peril didn't go anywhere. No. Vietnam was not going to promote Chinese communism in Vietnam or anywhere else. Vietnam's war was a war of independence and it wanted its independence from China just as much as yep. it wanted independence from the United States. But Australia didn't wake up to the reality of the Vietnam conflict until most of the damage had been done and the horrors became 
too evident. And then uh, the anti-war movement really ratcheted up and basically left the Australian government with no choice but to withdraw. But that's a great lesson, a powerful anti-war movement that I think is very focused, resonated the with you inside the yeah, halls of government. Yeah, and unless the, the present government is prepared to modulate its attitude towards China yeah. and seek some reasonable... Including the same rhetoric of yellow ending, peril, frankly. Well, the yes, China's the China, threat, the China the chi threat. The threat of China's expansionism is yeah. the modern version of the yellow peril. Yeah. Um, and when we had the yellow peril, of course, um, Australia said, yes, we'd go all the way with LBJ. Uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson paid a visit to Australia and the Australian Prime Minister then was Harold Holt. And, and yes, 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 yeah. we're all the way with LBJ. And what are we seeing now? Morrison saying, oh, we're in lockstep with yes. the United States. It's a quote, um, it's exactly quote. The, It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. And being in lockstep with the United States takes us into conflicts around the world in which we have no business at all and uh, really has also resulted in the present day of undoing all of the work that, that I and my many colleagues in foreign affairs, and I don't claim credit um, where it's not due, but I was part of the, the whole effort throughout the, the last 35 years of the 20th century of trying to integrate Australia into our region. There, there is, in fact, no attempt by anyone in the US administration to put themselves in Xi Jinping's shoes yeah. and see things from his perspective. When I went to China in 1974, and again, this is a personal anecdote, I went down to breakfast in the hotel where we were in, in, in Beijing my wife and my two little toddlers, and across the big dining hall from us was Claire Hollingworth, the intrepid British war correspondent, right. who was British colonialism, colonialism writ large. Yeah. Suddenly, I hear her call out, boy, boy, mm. calling the waiter from the kitchen. The waiter runs out, she picks up the egg out of her egg cup and throws it across the room at him and says, when I say soft, I mean soft. He meekly picked up the egg and went back to the kitchen and brought her back a soft-boiled egg. And I thought, that sums up the relationship then between China and the West. Yeah. That's the... Pers the yep. perspective that Xi Jinping is looking through. Yep. And he has said, we're not going to take it anymore. We're not, we're not boiling your eggs anymore. Uh, that's right. <laughs> Soft or hard. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the, 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 the boots gradually yeah. being transferred to the other foot. Yep. Um, we need to recognise that. When I arrived in, in Kuala Lumpur in 1967, uh, it was immediately post-colonial. Tunku Abdul Rahman was the Prime Minister who had been basically put there by, by Britain. And the atmosphere was exactly what I'd mm. learned from, from my mother-in-law. It was the natural order of things yeah. that the white man was the boss and the Asian man was the servant. And 
it wasn't until after I started studying the Chinese language in Kuala Lumpur, because languages have always fascinated me, and then went on to university just to do a degree in Asian studies, majoring in Chinese studies, and learning about China's civilization of 5,000 years of it. Western civilization has, what? Mm. A, a, a thousand, not even a thousand years, if we count from the birth of Christ. Sure. Um, you know, the Judeo-Christian civilization of the West is, is, is but a baby by comparison to Chinese civilization. And it was startling to me the extent to which the West owed its technological and economic rise to China. The, uh, China invented printing. China invented the pressure cooker. 200 really? years before the birth of Christ. Really? <laughs> the pressure cooker. <laughs> China, China invented the seismograph to detect earthquakes. Right. Uh, China invented printing. China invented gunpowder. You know, name Cash, my, one of my favourite subjects. Yeah. So we, almost everything that underpins Western civilization uh, started in China, it seemed. Uh, a book well worth reading for anybody who's in, interested in Chinese civilization is is Needham's monumental work on the history of Chinese science. Right. Uh, and he lists as an appendum at the back every Chinese, every uh, Western invention which owes its origins to an invention in China. Mm. And that addendum runs for pages. And it's just a list. Right. Uh, so uh, it took me quite a long time, even up until when I was posted to Beijing, to changed my mindset. It was, was quite a, when I look back on it, it was quite a long process mm. because I was part of that imperial mindset when I first started out in foreign affairs. And as I say, even when I was in, in China, that really startling incident with Claire Hollingworth sort of epitomised for me what the state of relations were at that time. Australians were very superior in their attitude towards China then. Because China was still very backward, yeah, yeah. but it's not the case now. And it seems I, I would say that the, um, the the wrong assumptions about the nature of Chinese governance, even though it's still a communist party, has is in a, has in a sense probably replaced that. People have all these assumptions: oh, they're communists, so that must mean all these things, which your own visits there prove isn't true. Yes, well, um, I think just simply labelling. Um, well, as, as President Biden has done, the world conflict now is, the, is not the East versus the West or the West versus the East. It's autocracy versus democracy, yeah, and yeah. democracy must win. Uh, and, of course, China is characterised as being the ultimate autocracy, which is so far from the truth as to be absolutely ridiculous. It displays a complete lack of understanding of the Chinese system of governance. Um, the... Uh, the Chinese themselves describe it as um, from grassroots up democracy. Mm. Um, the, well, they even vote there in China at they, the grassroots. They, they, voting is held at the grassroots level and then uh, a more limited form of voting to get to the provincial level and then a more limited form of voting by those who are involved in the, uh, in the administration to rise to the highest levels of government. Xi Jinping is not a dictator. Mm. He has an awful lot of power, but his position is dependent upon the continuing approval, first of all, of the Politburo and the Military Commission, and secondly, on the mass of the people. 
which is why he always, in all his policy pronouncements about China's um, policies for China and within China, are always interlarded with the admonition to the uh, administration across the country that the needs of the people come first, not the needs of the government. There's a, there's a cynical Western spin on that, John, and the analysis is if the Chinese Communist Party doesn't um, deliver for its people, it's scared that they'll rise up and overthrow it. And in a, in a funny sense, they should, I think they should listen to what they're saying because that's how all governments should operate because well, at yes, least it means that, the Chinese government is delivering for its people. And that is true <laughs> of Chinese civilization for over 5,000 years. Good point. The mandate of heaven yes. is placed on the shoulders of the emperor through the will of the people. If the people suffer and uh, reject the rule of the emperor, it means, according to the Chinese system, that he has lost the mandate of heaven and it is time to change the empire, to change the emperor and therefore to change the dynasty. That's not new in China. No. And the point is, of course, you take that same argument and turn it around, which is as long as the mass of the Chinese people approve of the Chinese Communist Party's management of China, the Chinese Communist Party is perfectly safe where it is. Yeah. And it's and not up to us to call Harvard it Harvard University, of all places, an American university, surveyed on several occasions very large surveys of the Chinese people and have found that 95% of the population favour the Chinese Communist Party government. Well, there you go. We don't get the, No, we I, don't I come think, close I to that. Th I think Morrison and Dutton would be delighted <laughs> if they had 95% approval ratings in Australia. They'd be delighted if they got the 40% right now. Let me go, go look at the polls. <laughs> well, President Biden is, is uh, well below 50%. He's yeah. 47% yeah. approval rating in America. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, any government that is able to achieve virtual unanimity amongst its population in terms of its approval rating must be doing something right. Mm. Uh, and as I said, uh, our characterisation of China as, si as simply an autocracy ruled by one man uh, shows a total lack of understanding of the complexity of the Chinese system of governance. And it is extremely complex. And part of the evidence of China's commitment to consultation with the masses is, of course, the, the Chinese People's Political Consultative Committee, which is a body which is set up to determine what are the wishes of the people, mm. which can then be put to the National People's Congress. Yep. which is to take place, the 20th National People's Congress is later this year. But there's this long process of consultation from village level up, refining, 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 until 
they reach a policy that can be adopted by the National People's Congress. Yes, and it's very important for Australians to know this and all Westerners to know this. For otherwise, I mean, if, the, if, if people appreciate this more, I believe they wouldn't um, uh, be so easily talked into this hostility towards China, which our whole discussion here yes. has illustrated, has put us in a very dangerous place. Um, John, I think we've, we'd better leave it here as a discussion for <laughs> yes. today. Um, we may do this again in the, uh, the not-too-distant future. I'll, I'll make one final comment um, from a Citizens' Party standpoint. Of course, you said the Chinese must be doing something right. Um, we know what they're doing right because we've studied China's economic success and how it's done it. And that, of course, is it's a commitment to building the infrastructure that raises living comment. standards. China's property bubble didn't burst. No, no, exactly. Um, they, they've transformed their economy through actual investment in infrastructure, which has lifted living standards, made, made um, production more efficient, more powerful, etc. Want to share that with the rest of the world through the Belt and Not Road initiative, which they've invited every country to join, including the United States, yeah. right? It is not a debt trap. It is not Chinese version of colonialism. If the United States was in there with China working on the projects, you'd have two great powers side by side. They could balance each other out, mm. right? And this, is, this would be an alternative to the world, uh, an alternative to this current um, uh, attempt to revive the Cold War yes, well, between they, the United States and China. Again, very quick comment. The, the United States strategy for the world is based on mutually assured destruction. Yeah. Mad. Yeah. China's proposal for the world is mutually assured prosperity. Yes. That is China's map for the world. Yes. And to Australians and Americans and, and British people, etc., ask yourself, how has your life improved economically in the last three or four decades? Truly, how has your community's life improved economically? Because for the average Chinese person, it's improved dramatically. And ours hasn't, because we have a system that where we enshrine power in an oligarchy in London and Wall Street and not actually in the hands of the people, right? And that's, that's a big difference. And I think in terms of, of uh, developing an anti-war movement, Australians should not only ask themselves how much Australians' current standards of living has improved uh, as mm. compared with the rapid improvement in China, ask yourself how much your current comfortable position and the standard of living in Australia would be harmed as a result of going to war with China. Hear, hear. That's the, that's the point. So, John, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I hope the, the viewer has learned a lot. I wanted to invite John on here because um, since I've been speaking to him, I've been struck by the clarity that a, someone who's worked in diplomacy has um, on these issues. Uh, we're in a very dangerous time in history, as we know. The danger is already there raging in Europe. We don't want it to come to Australia and to the Pacific. And it's going to if we don't change what we're doing. And that means listen to people with wisdom and experience. And I hope you would agree with me, John has demonstrated that today. There's a whole bunch more John Landers out there, senior diplomats such as himself, retired people, who are saying very similar and ask yourself why that is compared to what we're getting out of the current ranks of parliamentarians. That's what we have and to change. And bureaucrats. And bureaucrats, exactly. So, John, thanks very much. Thank you.
Thanks to the listener and the viewer. Tune in next time for more of Citizens Insight.